We're going to be looking, uh, we're two weeks away from finishing up our look at the book of Revelation. So today we look at Revelation 21, moving into chapter 22. Next week we'll wrap up the book in chapter 22. You can see in your bulletin the passage we'll read this morning is a little bit of uh, chapter 21 and a little bit of 22. So we're going to begin in verse 9 of chapter 21. We'll carry over into verse 5 of chapter 22. Let me ask you if you're able, if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 9. You can follow in your own Bibles or in the bulletin. This is the word of God. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire. The third, a gate, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, onyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. 
and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Would you please be seated, and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in this book of Revelation. We ask, Lord God, as we look at it together this morning, that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit says to the churches. Would you grow our affections for you? Would you strengthen our faith in you? Would you make us to see more of our need for you? And we ask, Lord God, that everything we say and do as we look together at your word would be pleasing to you. Would you, O oh Lord God, be glorified? We thank you for your son, Christ Jesus, for this new identity that we have in him. And we ask that we, O oh Lord God, would be dependent upon the work of your spirit through the faith that you've given to us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask all of this this morning. Amen. Well, as we get to the end of the book of Revelation, you'll see this morning in chapter 21, we are introduced to the vision of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city that comes descending upon the clouds, and John sees it beginning in verse 1 of chapter 21. Now, this on the heels of the new heavens and the new earth, which were introduced last week when Tony preached. As we begin this morning thinking about the new Jerusalem, it is, as it is portrayed here in chapter 21 and chapter 22, let me begin by saying the modern interpretation of the new Jerusalem in chapter 21 is problematic for a variety of reasons. I want to give you a few of those as we begin thinking about the new Jerusalem in chapter 21. I don't know how many of you are avid country music fans, uh, but if you're like me and you listen to country music for any long amount of time, you will begin to hear phrases that speak about these streets of gold, and it goes something like this, okay? When we get to heaven and we see the streets of gold, that'll be great, but if only they were dirt roads, right? Are you familiar with those, that type of thinking, right? Dirt roads would be the perfect picture of a heavenly utopia, and that kind of resonates with my own feeling. When I read of this future place in glory that's described by a city with great high walls, that really doesn't sound that appealing to me, okay? If I was to think of the perfectly heavenly vision of a, of a place that I would want to go in future eternity, it would be a, a, a mountain valley in a remote place with a, a ranch and uh, be fenced in and I could enjoy, you know, the animals that lived in my ranch and the town center would be miles away and I'd go there maybe once a month to collect my mail and say hi to my neighbors and that would be it, okay? That would be the picture of a heavenly utopia, all right? And so the description this morning of this new Jerusalem that comes down on the clouds is kind of problematic in my understanding of, of what heaven will be like. It's problematic for other reasons, though, as well. For instance, if we take a very literal reading 
of the heavenly city of Jerusalem coming down in the clouds, if we take a literal reading of a future place that we're going to go to, then a number of the descriptions in chapter 21 present very practical problems. I'll give you an example of that in verse 16. Verse 16, as the city is being described, it says that, that the, the width of the city was 12,000 stadia. And then the voice goes on to say that the width and the depth and the height of the city are all the same, equal. 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. I don't know if you've thought about what this visually looks like as the city of Jerusalem, but again, it's problematic. I thought if I had the whiteboard this morning, I was going to draw this for you because 12,000 stadia is approximately 1,500 miles, okay? So a city 1,500 miles wide stretches halfway across the United States, not problematic in and of itself, nor would the depth of the city be problematic, but the height of the city presents a number of problems for us, okay? If you envision this, it extends into the upper atmosphere, all right? So the city that's being described here, if we're to literally understand, it extends in the upper atmosphere. The top floor of the city would have satellites floating by, okay? And I, as I was thinking about this, I thought, well, okay, this is not how I wanted to spend eternity if my room is on the top floor. I do not want to do that, okay? I, we'd spend half of eternity just going up and down the elevator. It would take forever to get to the top floor. Obviously not and a, 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 a literal description of the future place that we're going. That's not what's happening in chapter 21. This description of the 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000, again, we've looked at the numbers in the book of Revelation. It's a picture of perfection, the number 12 and the, the multiplying it by 1,000 and then the perfect, the, the cube nature of this city. It's just a picture of whatever God is describing is in perfection. Okay, so then the question we must ask is, what is being described in Revelation 21 and 22? Well, here's my first point, and I want to explain it to you as we look at this passage. My first point is, as we read chapter 21 and 22, we see a description of who we are, not where we're going, okay? Of who we are, not where we are going. There's a number of ways we see this implicit and explicit in the passage, I'll give you a few of those. First of all, as chapter 21 begins in verse 1, 2, and 3, here's what it says. John, in verse 1, he sees the new heavens and the new earth. In verse 2, it says he saw the heavenly city descending upon the clouds. And then in verse 3, he says, I heard a voice. If you haven't picked up on it yet, there's a pattern in Revelation where John sees something. And then John is probably wondering, I wonder what that is, okay? And then he hears a voice, and the voice explains it to him, Okay? Over and over again. That's a, a repetitious pattern in Revelation. So what happens in verse 3? John sees the heavenly city descending on the clouds. And then the voice says, behold, uh, the dwelling place of God is with man. Okay? So that's a relational statement. Whatever then we're going to understand about the heavenly city descending upon the clouds, it has to be relational. It has to, in some way, tell us something about the presence of God with man. But there's more. In the passage that we read this morning, beginning in verse 9, if you look at it, verse 9 says this, Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. He spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Okay, so you see the correlation there, what just happened 
the angel says to John, behold, I'm going to show you something. It's the bride of Christ. Well, what do we know the bride of Christ is? It's been obvious in this book. The bride of Christ is the church, okay? The bride of Christ is the church being prepared for the, for the groom, all right? That's been over and over again, repetitious, okay? So here's uh, the angel saying, I'm going to show you the bride of Christ. And then what happens next is John sees the heavenly city descending from the clouds, okay? Very clearly, the correlation is this heavenly city is a picture of the people of God. It's a picture of the church, right? Whatever we know then about the heavenly city, it's got to be some description or some detail or, or some indicator of the characteristics of the church, the bride of Christ. Now, this makes sense with the rest of the passage. For instance, when we get, as we continue reading, when we get to chapter 22, verse 14, there's a list of people in chapter 22, verse 14. It's the same list of people in chapter 21, verse 8. And in that list, you saw there was the sexually immoral, there were the idolaters, there were those who love and practice falsehoods. There's a whole list of people. And in chapter 22, verse 14, it says that that group of people was outside of the city walls, okay? So here, if the city is a depiction of the church, the people of God, then we have another group of people who is now outside the city walls. Those are not the people of God. All right, so the, the clear interpretation and understanding of the new Jerusalem descending on the clouds is that this is an allegorical, figurative, prophetic picture of the people of God. And that makes sense. We've, we've read the whole book like that. I, I actually don't, sometimes I don't understand how we can read the whole book of Revelation and we can say, of course, we're not going to see a, a beast with seven heads and ten horns. Of course, this is a picture. But then we get to the, the new Jerusalem. We say, can't wait to walk those streets of gold, okay? We do that, don't we? Like, this is a place we're going. It's not a place we're going. Yeah, there's a place we're going, and it's beautiful, and we're going to see what that looks like. But this is, this is not literal. There, there may be streets of gold there. I don't think there will be. But that's not what's being described in chapter 21 and 22. As the voice says, behold, this is the bride of Christ. Okay? So as we read the descriptions in chapter 21 and 22, what we need to do is we need to ask ourselves the, the question, what is all the vivid imagery telling me about the church? Now, here's a, a job I want to give you. We don't have time to go through all of chapter 21. I would love to do it. I would love to go verse by verse and say, okay, well, there's a description of the city. What does that tell us about the church? We don't have the time. If you have the time, go home tonight or go home this week. Read chapter 21. Read every detail about this new city and ask yourself the question, what does it say about the church? What does the walls say about the church? What does the gates say about the church? What do the precious jewels say about the church? What, is, what does the description of what's happening in the city tell us about the church? I mean, it's beautiful. You will find out so many wonderful, amazing things about the bride of Christ. Okay, let me give you a, just a few examples. First of all, twice in chapter 21, twice in 21, we've seen the city descending from heaven. I think one of the images that that's meant to depict to us is that the people of God have their existence, their formation, their, their beginning, their meaning, their sustenance. They have it coming from God, okay? That he's the author of it, that he's the creator of it, the beginning of it. Uh, as Nicodemus says, uh, how can a man be born again? What does it mean to be born twice? And, and Jesus tells him, you must be born once of the flesh and once of the spirit. Okay, that is a, a birth from the living God. And so the descending from heaven of the city is a picture of that. The a second description here, beginning in verse 11, it says that the, the city is having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, 
clear as crystal. And if you saw the descriptions of the gates, right? Each of them has these uh, fine jewels and gems that half of them we can't pronounce, okay? So fine gems and jewels that adorn, and each of the doors is like a great pearl. All of this fine, valuable, aesthetically pleasing imagery is meant to communicate something about the church. I would say probably most importantly, most significantly, that the church is the prized possession of the living God. So not only is he making for himself a people, but the word of God says that the church is the prized possession of the living God. Now, I think often we say that, but we don't maybe recognize what that means. I know that all of you probably have prized possessions at home. Some of you keep them in a safe. Some of you tuck them under your mattresses or under your pillows. You keep them in the dresser drawer. You maybe wear them around your neck. These are the things that you say are most valuable to me. I look at them. We do that with our prized possessions. We take them out of their hiding place. We look at them and say, look how beautiful my prized possession is. For some of us, they're physical objects. For some of us, they're people or things. But all of us knows what it means to have a prized possession. The thing we look at with great beauty and love, satisfaction. This is the picture of the church as it's described as this heavenly city. It is the prized possession of the living God, beloved by God, that his heart is moved for it. That as God describes his people, he can only describe them with things like gold and jasper and carillion and amethyst and pearls and all of the vivid, beautiful imagery that goes into this description of the heavenly city. One of the other observations I think is worth making is these gates. You see the, the gates there, on three on the east and three on the west and three on the north and three on the south. The gates are always opened, but there's an interesting takeaway from the original language in the Greek. It doesn't say that there was three gates on the east and three gates on the west. It actually says three gates from the east and three gates from the west. And, and, and so the imagery that's being communicated there, there to us is that from the, all four corners of the earth are these open gates from which people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue are entering into the city of God. That is, they are becoming part of the people of God through the gift of faith, drawing them unto himself and the, the makeup or the composition of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ who is presented to him as this beautiful prized possession. The composition of that group of people is greatly diverse that they come from every generation, that they come from old New Testament and church age, that they come from every tribe and tongue, that they come from every ethnicity, that they are male and female, that they are both Jew and Gentile, that they are greatly diverse because God is making that beautiful prized possession for himself that comes from all the four corners of the earth, okay? You, you can go through this description of the city of Jerusalem and you can find example after example after example after example of the vivid and wonderful descriptions of the bride of Christ, okay? That's what's happening in chapter 21. Now listen, chapter 21, the, the new Jerusalem is a representation of the, the consummation of so many Old Testament images, okay? There are so many images in the Old Testament that are finally realized 
in the people of God. God makes for himself a people, and they are the consummation of the images of, of the priests and of the temple and of the sacrifice and the work that he's doing and of the kings and, and, and of the prophets. All of it consummates in the making of a people for God himself. I'll give you an example of this. I'm not sure if you recognized it as you're reading chapter 21, but there's a lot of language from Ezekiel that finds its uh, fulfillment in uh, Revelation chapter 21. So in Ezekiel the prophet from chapter 40 through 48, if you've memorized the book of Ezekiel, you'll remember for, and I know you're laughing, you haven't memorized it, that's okay. Um, for eight chapters, Ezekiel receives a vision from God and he describes a heavenly temple. Eight chapters. Now, if you've read through the book of Ezekiel, you probably are reading those eight chapters and you're like, oh, this is kind of monotonous. There's, there are description after description after description of the measurements of the walls and the, and the, the width and the height and the, the composition of the temple, and it just gets to be kind of long. And you're, you might be wondering when you read Ezekiel, why, why is this description of the temple here? And for anyone, for many of the Jews who are waiting on the prophetic imagery of the Old Testament to still be fulfilled, or for anyone who takes a more literal reading of Revelation, Many people read the temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48, and they say, I can't wait for the day when this temple comes. Wonder when it's going to be built. Wonder what it's going to look like. Wonder what it's going to be like to finally worship in this beautiful temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48. But there's an important description. In the middle of Ezekiel's description, it goes something like this. Actually, this is exactly what it says in chapter 43, verse 6. While the man that is the angel was standing beside me, Ezekiel, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And this is the language that continues on in chapter 43. Ezekiel is given a vision of the temple, and it's clear that as, as in chapter 43, as the voice from the temple is speaking, the voice is saying, listen, this will be the dwelling place of God with man. This will be the place that I redeem for myself a people, and I will be with them forever. It's obvious as you read the description of the temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48 that this vision in 21 is the representative consummation of this. That is to say, the temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48 is a description of the church, the people of God. Now, that makes sense because this is, after all, the very image that the apostle Paul picks up on. For instance, in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this, so then you, that is you, the people of God, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. You saw both of those things in the description in 21. There was the foundation of the apostles there. There was the 12 tribes of Israel and the prophets represented in this picture. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Isn't that obvious? I mean, Paul makes it so clear that the imagery we read in chapter 21 is a picture of the church that is being built into the place or the people in whom God will commune perfectly forever. That's the picture in chapter 21. Now, if you, if you rewind back to Ezekiel's vision, something weird happens in Ezekiel, 
And it is one of those passages where I don't understand how we can continue to see a figurative fulfillment. In, in, verse, in chapter 37, Ezekiel has now seen the temple. And in chapter 37, what happens is he says he begins to see the temple filling up with water. And at first of all, it fills up to his ankles, but he goes further into the temple. And then he said it fills to his waist and then to his shoulders. And at one point, he says, I could no longer stand. He begins to swim in the water that fills the temple. And if you think about this, if this is a, 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 literal, a literal practical temple that we're expecting one day in the future, the question remains, why is the temple filled with water? And practically speaking, how can the temple ever function as a temple if it's filled with water? I mean, could you imagine the priest going in to make sacrifice or to offer the burnt offering? How does that happen with a temple filled with water? It, it doesn't, okay? As a matter of fact, it connects us directly to the language in chapter 22 when the angel says, he showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the city, the middle of the street of the city. As the angel begins to describe this river of life that flows through the city, we make the connection. We say, oh, that's the temple in chapter 37 that was being filled with water. It's the living water that flows from the tree of life and from the temple of the living God, okay? This is the picture that's being described as the church, okay? So first point, this is not a place we are going. It is the people that we are and we are being made into, okay? It is the church of God. Second point, and this is it, just two points this morning. Very simple. Second point, this description in chapter 21 is meant to communicate to us the satisfaction found in Jesus Christ and not some materialistic consumerism. Okay, so let me qualify that. I heard one pastor who was preaching on chapter 21, and the pastor who was preaching said, you know, this description of the city of Jerusalem, it's, it's not... It's hard to make it relevant to a modern audience because when we read this and we say, okay, what's the big deal about walls that go so high or open gates or closed gates? I don't know the difference. I've never had gates around my city anyway, okay? So a lot of this description we find is not terribly relevant to the world we live in. So the preacher who was preaching said, I, I tried to think of a, a relevant example that would make sense to my congregation. He said, the best thing I could come up with was a shopping mall, okay? So you go into a shopping mall and you know, there's stores for everything you want. You just, you want something there, you go to this store, and you go to the, or you go across the hallway, and you go to this store. It's all there. It's all present for you. But he said, I, I didn't use that as an example for my congregation because it really feels like materialistic consumerism, okay? And we're certainly prone to that in our society. When I was reading it, it, it reminded me of Amazon, all right? So I, I was thinking about this um, I, I think if you have children that are my age or younger, you probably realize that your children have grown up in a world where they don't know anything apart from Amazon, okay? So like Amazon, for all of your needs, there's Amazon. I was, as I was getting ready for this sermon, I was thinking, it was, I think it was this year, my children, one of them were, I forget which one, they were getting ready to make a presentation at school, and they said to us, they said, uh, I got this presentation in three days, and I haven't yet prepared for it. I need to get some materials to get ready for this presentation. And, and my wife and I were like, what are you doing? You're procrastinating. We, there's not enough time to go out and get these things, the shoebox you need and the art supplies. And, and our children calmly said to us, don't worry. Amazon delivers in 48 hours, okay? So we're going to be fine. And that, they had already they had planned, they had banked on Amazon. It would be ready. So they only needed three days because in two days it would be here, Okay. Definitely that feels like materialistic consumerism, but let me tell you why those analogies are at least relevant as we have this conversation. 
God in his condescension coming down towards us, moving towards us in his son Jesus Christ and in his word of revelation, he often, well, he always must use images from this world to communicate things our minds cannot comprehend, okay? You, you want a, an analogy to understand this. God is like a, a four-dimensional picture, and to at least make himself relevant or known to us, he has to kind of make a two-dimensional stick figure, black and white image that our minds might comprehend something of who he is and what he's doing. And so God always speaks to us through images from this world. And you see what God is doing in chapter 21 and 22. He's taking the things that in this world are most prized and most valuable. He's taking images that communicate the most worthiness and the most satisfaction and the most contentment. He's taking images from this world and he is painting a picture for us to describe to us the future satisfaction that we will ultimately have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And though all the images of this world fall woefully short, yet God gives us an image of what that will be something like, okay? The best description I can think of as we read chapter 21 is, listen, uh, uh, your wildest imagination, multiply it by a million, that's what it will be like when we join Jesus Christ and the satisfaction we will experience with him in that day, okay? That it will be more beautiful than you can imagine. It will be more amazing than you could ever think of. It will be everything that you dreamed of times infinity, okay? That's the description that God is giving through earthly images in Revelation chapter 21. So you think about all the things of this world, the, the satisfying things of this world. You think about what it feels like to have a, a refrigerator full of groceries, okay? Not to wonder where, where your meal's going to come from in the next week. That's kind of satisfying, isn't it? You think about what it's like to be stuck in a cold rain and to come in and have warmth and to have a fireplace or to just feel like, oh, that resolution of I'm, I'm warm, I feel satisfied. You, you think of what it's like to experience an injustice in this world and to long for justice and finally to realize it. We, we probably know kind of what that's like. We all experience that in various different ways, okay? All of these temporal descriptions, they begin to scratch the surface, just scratch the surface of the satisfaction that we will experience one day when we are joined together with our Lord and Savior, the satisfaction that we will experience in eternity, okay? It won't be temporal, it won't be limited, it will be forever. And it will be in our souls, and it will be in our minds, and it will be in our hearts, and it will be in our relationships, and it will be in our bodies, and it will be in, in all of us. In our entirety, we will experience the satisfaction of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think maybe it's often easy to think about what the negative of this looks like, okay? the opposite. We, can you imagine what it would be like to never have an anxious thought? Just think about it for a second. Never to have an anxious thought. Can you imagine what it will be like to never wonder what tomorrow holds? What it will be like to never have a fear? What it will be like to never wonder about your own sin? What it will be like to wonder if you're going to be provided for, if you will have sustenance? What it will be like to never wonder if, you, if you're going to be hungry again? What it would uh, uh, ever feel like to... Uh, be to wonder if you're going to have the satisfaction, the relational satisfaction. All of these pictures, okay, are being depicted to us in chapter 21 of the final satisfaction 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a beautiful picture that is painted for us of something that tongues cannot describe, that minds cannot fathom, that art and music cannot capture, that we have no categories for. That's the description of the church in glory joined together with our Savior. Now listen, here's, you might be wondering, what, what's, what's going on here? Why does God give us this description? What is he wanting to do within the church? Let me tell you, if, you, if we've read and talked about the book of Revelation rightly, first and foremost, this book is meant to develop in us a yearning, okay? You know the word yearn? You're familiar with it, right? Yearn. It means to long for something, to want it, to desire it. And the description here is the capstone of this whole book that is meant to produce in the church a voice that says, I can't wait to be with Jesus. I long for that day. I can't wait to be with him. I want everything that's described here. Every moment of my life, every waking hour, I yearn to be with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's, that's what this book is meant to produce in the first century church, in the church today, and in Christians from this point forward. Whoever reads this book, it's meant to produce a yearning for the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? We're going to talk more about that next week as we wrap up this book in chapter 22. I do think it is the primary theme of the book of Revelation. I think it's why ultimately... God gives this vision to his son who delivers it to John, who delivers it to the churches in Asia Minor, who pass it along to us. I believe that's what this book is meant to do, to produce a yearning for Jesus in our hearts. Now, let me just point out this final thought here. As you read in chapter 22, the picture goes from a city and a temple now to a garden. And we see there the images of uh, the Garden of Eden, right? There's a connection there that goes from Eden all the way to the end here in Revelation. And there's the tree of life and from it's coming living water and there's the throne of God. It's a beautiful, wonderful picture of the ultimate realization of everything that we have yearned for and dreamed of and, and wanted in our lives. But there's something significant that happens here, okay? It says, the angel showed me in chapter 22, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street and of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Let me tell you something, okay? As I was reading through the, uh, this, the beginning of chapter 22, something strange happens, okay? The word that's used here for the tree of life is not the typical word for tree. If you read this in the Greek, you'd be reading through and you'd be like, wait, wait a second, what is... What's his word here? It doesn't belong here. Typical word for tree in Greek is the word dendron, right? You can hear in that uh, the, some of the Latin phrases we use to describe uh, dis, uh, deciduous trees, I think, dendron. And, um, and that's the word that is, that is always used in the New Testament except for just maybe two or three occurrences, okay? And here's one of the places, here's one of the places that this word is used, zulon, okay? If you want to spell it, if you want to translate it, it'd be an X, U-L-O-N, Zulon, that's the word that's used here. That word appears in 2 Peter when Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Whenever anybody reads that passage, they often ask the question, what does Peter mean that Christ bore our sins on the tree? Didn't he die on a cross? Wait, why is Peter bringing a tree into it, Okay. 
The word zulon is a Greek word that means a wooden thing that comes from a tree. Often it would be used of a post. I think if, if, if a Greek writer was describing the posts that are holding up uh, this pavilion here, they might describe them with the word zulon. It's a, it's a wooden object that comes from a tree. And so Peter uses it in 2 Peter to connect us to the Old Testament prophetic imagery that says, you know, if anyone is a sinner, they're to be crucified on a tree, to be condemned and hung on a tree, okay? So there Peter picks up, but, but let me tell you why I think it's used in the book of Revelation. Because as John is seeing this vision in chapter 22 of a, the water of life flowing from the tree of life, it's not simply the tree of life, okay? I think he intentionally uses the Greek word, which for anyone who would have heard it would have immediately connected them to 2 Peter, where they would have said, oh, Peter told us. Peter told us that anyone that, uh, sorry, that Christ uh, bore our sins on a tree. They immediately would have drawn their attention to the cross. And isn't this beautiful then? I truly believe, Revelation chapter 22, this depiction of the people of God as a heavenly city and garden, that the imagery that is communicated to us is that the water, the living water, the water of life is flowing from the throne of God, but it's also flowing from this tree of life. And it's not simply the tree of life that was in the garden, okay? But it connects the tree of life in the garden with the cross of Christ, and the cross of Christ was the sign of death, but now it's become the sign of life. That for all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ through his death on the cross, that they would be raised to new life and they would drink the living water. That they would be made partakers in the life that Christ earned for them, was imputed to them on the cross, that he took their sin and now gave them life. This is the picture in Revelation chapter 22. So you see now the imagery. That as we look at this heavenly city, the picture of the people of God, we see the object from which life flows. We see what makes possible this beautiful picture of eternal satisfaction. Not only is it the tree of life, but it is the cross of Christ. That he who hung on the cross and bore our sins purchased for us this eternal inheritance. That we would become co-heirs with the Son of God. That everything was due him also became ours. That we became sons and daughters of the living God and that we would have this eternal inheritance with him forever. That comes from the cross. So the cross, the sign of death, becomes the sign of life. The cross, the thing that was meant to bring death, brings life. That for all those who believe in him, they would not perish but have everlasting life. This is the beauty of Revelation 21 and 22. A city, not a place that we're going, but a people that we're being made into by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful picture. And we know our Lord and our God that you have sought us out. And you have sent your son to die on a cross. That was your plan. And you have given him who was perfect, who lived in perfect obedience to you, who was blameless in your sight, who knew no sin. You have made him to be sin on our behalf, that he would take our sin to the cross, that it would be nailed there, that his blood would be shed, that his body would be broken, to pay the price for our sins that we could be made righteous and blameless in your sight. 
And now, O oh Lord God, because we have been adopted into your family through this union with Christ, we have a beautiful, perfect, eternal inheritance. And so, Lord, I ask that as we, your people, wait in this time in between, as we wait, knowing that Christ is risen, but we wait to see him perfectly, would you make us, Lord God, to yearn, to long for, to desire the return of our Lord and Savior, to look forward to a day when there will be no sin and suffering and no tears and no pain, where we will want no more, where we will be perfectly provided for. We ask, Lord God, that as you make us yearn for that day, that we would depend more and more upon Christ and upon your Spirit who works within us. We ask all this for your glory, our Lord and our God, and we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.